laugh at this next part. In a world of political correctness and cancel culture, two comedians have risen up to prove that with the right angle, anything can be funny. This is You Can't Laugh at That. Who writes these? Who huh? should have this person locked up and looked at? Live from Golden Ox Studios in Cleveland, Ohio, it's Steve Murs and David Horning on this week's episode. That's why great comedy is polarizing. So you're always going to have people who are offended because you are, a good comedy should touch a nerve and it should have a point of the truth. And the thing is, is my truth isn't your truth. People should be offended by bad comedy or lazy comedy, not by comedy they disagree with. Welcome to the newest episode of You Can't Laugh at That, the podcast where we take topics that are considered offensive, taboo, crossing the line, hack, so on and so forth, and we find ways that they are, in fact, funny. I am joined with my ever-diligent co-host, Steve Mers. Steve, what's going on? Um, Nothing. I've been here, and I'm waiting for you guys, so... (laughs) (laughs) Wait a minute. Uh, That's not how I remember it. But uh, Steve is joining us and uh, so is our guest, Jeff Shaw. A little bit about Jeff Shaw. Uh, Jeff has performed nearly 9,000 comedy shows across North America and the Caribbean. Uh, Only 1,000 more for those 10,000 shows. Isn't that mastery? Isn't that Malcolm Gladwell's uh, No, that's that's 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. Yeah. All right. So almost there. Um, oh, Jeff, I'll ahead, uh, man, because if you count writing every day and open mics and, and traveling in your car, that all adds up. So Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Galwell uh, can kiss my butt, man. I, <laughs> <laughs> I, I've got I've got a million hours already. All right. He is. And Jeff, Jeff is a master. Um, Jeff has been on some of my shows. We performed at a couple shows together recently. We're coming back from the pandemic. So audiences have been a little bit rowdy, a little bit excited to be at the bar, and it's provided a fun, fun environment for uh, performing comedy. Jeff's been doing it uh, for what? When did you get started? Uh, performing um, I started um, uh, about a week or two ago. <laughs> I was I was waiting on CDC guidelines for reopening my big fat mouth. I mean, I mean, when, like, when did you start doing comedy? Like the first time you got on stage? Oh, I, I thought you meant uh, since the pandemic. My first open mic was uh, August 16th, 19, uh, 1986 on a Sunday night at the at the old Cleveland Comedy Club. Oh, wow. Cleveland. Yeah. That was where uh, Progressive Field is, right? Yeah. And it was uh, it was my first time on stage and uh, I showed up with a suitcase in the trunk of my car, a change of clothes in case, and a gift for Johnny Carson. And somebody was gonna come <laughs> pick up my car if I got a limo to the airport because I was convinced, and I, I'm not kidding you, I, this actually happened. I showed up <clears throat> ready to travel to LA after the show to be on the Tonight Show. <laughs> I, I, I thought that the I thought that the Cleveland Comedy Club would get on the headline. Hello, Mr. Carson, sir. Yeah, we've got this kid, Jeff Shaw. You, you, you need to get him on the show. Yeah, we're, we're going to take him to the airport now. He's a maverick. Yeah. In fact, I even parked my car in a cheaper lot in case I had to leave it there for a couple of days before someone can come get it. 
And uh, so I showed I, I showed up at the Cleveland Comedy Club, and as I drove past, I saw a long line of people waiting to go in. And I go, well, wow, this is good. They must have heard that I'm going to be there tonight. The guy that I talked to on the phone must have told everybody. And then I, I walk up thinking about, you know, what I'm going to wear on the Tonight Show and all this stuff. And then I, I, I see all these people. And I hear them talking about comedy. One guy goes, yeah, I've been working on that bit for a year now. I think I finally got it down. What about Jim? I heard that he won uh, the open mic contest last week. Yeah, it's good for him. This is his fifth year and he finally won one. And I'm like, what? I'm hearing all these comics talk about comedy. I go, hey, are you guys here to see the show? And they go, no, we're the comics. You want to be on? Yeah, you got to wait in line and get a spot. And all of a sudden, listening to these comics talk about open mic night and what it's like, um, my whole fantasy of becoming a star in one show just melted and I became so nervous. And then, um, I was in the army reserves for six years. So I, um, my idea was to have my military haircut, the black military glasses and a thrift store suit. So before I was going to go up, I went into the restroom and changed and I came out and the MC said, um, all right, your next, your next uh, comedian is an, a, a Marine reservist, and uh, he's a regular MC here at the Cleveland Comedy Club. Ladies and gentlemen, Drew Carey. Uh, so then, so, so then, Drew Carey, uh, Drew Carey goes on stage and kills. And I change out of my suit. I take off my glasses. I um, am introduced, and because I don't have my glasses, I trip and fall off the stage under the table in the front row. And then uh, people are going like, yeah, when we say get off the stage, we didn't mean it like that. <laughs> and so I go up on stage, and I bomb for two minutes, and I run off the stage in the back of the room, and the MC goes up and says, let's hear it for that Jeff Shaw kid, kind of a short act. I heard it between strokes in the men's room. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, and then uh, I didn't go on stage again for another six months, and I went back in '87, got enough laughs to keep doing it, and the rest is history. What a first time! Yeah, man. And, and Drew Carey, uh, I was I was doubled over, hyperventilating in the lobby after my set, and Drew Carey came up to me and he goes, "Hey, good job! I like that one joke you did." I go, "Which joke?" He goes, "The one you said where my mom says I'm so slow, I'd be late to my own funeral." No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go. I never liked the bum in the first place. <laughs> yeah it was it was drew carey who gave me my first book on joke writing so not really yeah how long was when did he go out to where did he go out to la from Cleveland? yeah well he he um he was sort of working the road in like 86 87 i worked with him at the funny bone i featured for him at the funny bone in milwaukee halloween i mean uh, thanksgiving of 1987 and uh and then uh, the owner of the Cleveland Comedy Club became his manager and sent a tape to the Tonight Show. And uh, Drew passed me six months later on the turnpike and then rolled down his window and said, I got the Tonight Show. And then he missed a phone call off on the spot and he wasn't there to take it. And he didn't get on the show till three years later. But that same year, 88, he got on uh, Star Search. And then after he did Star Search, he moved out to L.A. And then he, he did uh, The Tonight Show the first time on my birthday, November 8th, 1991. And about I remember month, that video. Yeah, about a month earlier, uh, I had been w working with him at the Funny Bone in Arlington, Texas. And he was at the batting cages with uh, the, the, the club managers. 
and I was watching some Woody Allen movies and uh, in the condo and uh, Jim McCauley from the Tonight Show, who was a big famous booker back then, the legendary um, comedian booker, called is Drew Carey here there? And I said, well, no, he's not. Uh, I go, no, Drew Carey um, died. And, uh, and he, uh, and he told me that if you offered him the show that I could fill in for him and he laughed. And so, mm-hmm. um, so I called, I called, uh, I called his managers, uh, Drew's manager. And then he got in touch with Jim McCauley and then, and then, uh, he did the show, uh, on my birthday. So it was pretty cool. Huh. Uh, going back to your story about your first time, just that outsider's perspective of comedy, like first yeah. time on stage, I'm going to be famous. Um, it, it's funny the people's perceptions of comedy that aren't in comedy. And right. that kind of leads us to our topic today is uh, audience members who get offended uh, from jokes that comedians tell. And uh, Jeff, you work mostly clean. I've seen you uh, whip out a couple of, uh, of, of dirty jokes just for a curveball every once in a while. And it's so yeah, funny yeah, when you do because yeah, you, you don't expect it. But yeah, on, 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 on these type of shows that we do locally in a, in a comedy club, I, I never do unless it's like, you know, like these type of open stages and stuff. Yeah, I will, especially if the joke, you know, if I think it's funny. But I, but, but if, I, if, I, if I swear, it has to get an applause break or a huge laugh. It has to be. I won't, I just won't use like, I went to the blank and blank and store. When I say mother blank, there better be, people better be spitting out their drinks. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's, 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 to me, it's like, it's, it's like, I don't find, I don't find swearing or anything offensive. I find it boring. You know, and I like the challenge, like Jerry Seinfeld's this challenge of, of, of finding the right word in the right way, because it's, I think you're right. If you, if you don't use swearing, then you ha- you're forced to make your premises and your punchlines cleaner, neater, stronger, you know? So that's yeah. why, that's why I don't use it. But when I do use it and I can, and it's the perfect, it's the perfect tool for the job you know, then, um, then I will use it because I want the joke to be perfect. And if I would be kidding myself or I'd be losing a truth or, or making the joke less authentic because I didn't use vulgarity, then that's the, that's the other side of the coin. I wouldn't want to do that. You know, but the beauty is if you work different rooms, you can write jokes that you can do in different situations. You know, I can work clean for corporate and have a whole half hour material that I can do in a club if it's, if it's, or in a bar, if it's rowdy. And I can pull out all kinds of stuff that I normally wouldn't talk about. That's, that's, that's the great thing about being versatile. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I think that you need to, you need to write the joke wherever it takes you and make sure that the joke is an authentic, as truthful and as effective as possible. And then you just decide where you're going to do those, that chunk of material and where you're not going to do it. That's what I like about your style is you can tell that, you know, you're what you're saying. You mean like every single joke I've heard you do, whether you're trying a brand new joke out and seeing if it works or, you know, you're you're bringing out the tried and true material at, at a paid show or a club show. You're very authentic in, in how you oh, deliver. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's you, you have to be. I mean, the audience can sense when somebody's trying to be funny versus when they're they're actually delivering, you know, their point of view in an authentic way. I mean, that obviously comes with time and kind of finding your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, when, uh, and that's, a, that's the topic that a lot of, a lot of comics, uh, especially younger comics, you know, it's, it's a challenge to find your voice because it takes all that time on stage and, and bombing and, and working out material from uh, crashing and burning into a good joke. Now, 
you personally, how long would you say it took to find your comedic voice? Um, uh, it took about five years in the second time. I did stand up from 1987 to 2004. Okay. And, um, I would become violent whenever uh, whenever somebody would tell me that I need a point of view. I'm like, what do you mean point of view? Point of view? Denny's food sucks. That's my point of view. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, Ford Fiestas are small cars. What do you mean that's not a point of view? I think small cars are tiny and stupid. That's a point of view. And they're like, no, no, you're not going to get into JF. You're not going to get into Montreal. I go, why? That's my point of view. So I didn't get what people are talking about, a point of view and a voice. I go, listen to my voice. Nobody has a voice like mine. What are you talking about? There are cartoon characters going, wow, that kid's got something. You know, so I just didn't, I just didn't get it. So um, when I retired in 2004 to become a greeting card writer at American Greetings, I had 17 years behind me. And, you know, I made a living, but I wasn't headlining everywhere and I was in a lot of debt. And then I got laid off from there and I went to work for Carnival Cruise Lines because my career was over. Couldn't get a job uh, at Hallmark, couldn't get a job at Andrews McNeil. I couldn't get back in a stand-up. I'd been out of it too long and, and, and the market had bottomed out. The comeback didn't start yet. So I went to work for Carnival Cruise Lines and after two years of becoming, uh, of, of training to become a cruise director, um, and hosting all the comedy shows and occasionally doing, you know, hosting them, uh, doing material, uh, they decided to start a comedy club chain for Carnival. And one night, uh, one of our comedians missed a ship. And I went up into 25 minutes as a headliner and destroyed. And Carnival heard about it. And then they decided to make me, um, put me in charge of their comedy program. So when I started running the comedy club program in October of 2009, I was also the house MC and I started hosting 20 shows a week. And I had a unique job where I spent all day writing. I just did a few activities, but I had all day to work on my craft. That was the deal that I struck with them. So for, for eight years, I did 20 shows a week, five to 10 minutes in front of a packed house of 300 to 500 people every night. Uh, and then I did that uh, for anywhere from six to 14 months at a time with a couple of months off. Then after like five years, I started filling in for the headliners that missed the ship. So um, doing having that club and becoming like a, a celebrity on the ships and having all day to write and also to consume, you know, becoming a huge fan of all the modern comedy you know, all the modern comics, you know, I'm one of those older guys that wasn't satisfied with being a hacky comic. I want, I wasn't intimidated by, by, uh, the new comedy guys like Louis CK and, 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 you know, and, and guys like that because, uh, you know, the comedy central gang from like the, the two thousands, because, uh, being a fan of comedy first and foremost, made me fall in love with it again. And I had all this time to figure out who I was and also losing my career, losing, uh, losing my life, losing my apartment and having to start over wearing blue shorts and a megaphone, you know, in my forties, uh, really had to reckon with all my mistakes and everything that uh, I took for granted. When I worked at carnival, uh, when I worked at American greetings, instead of being thrilled that I was making a living writing jokes all day in a beautiful studio, um, I felt like a loser because I hadn't written a screenplay or I didn't have books on the shelves at Barnes and Noble. And then when I lost my job, 
I no longer fantasize about being published or being famous or being on TV. Uh, when I was sitting there working in the mailroom at 42 years of age, I thought, oh, I would kill to be able to get in my car and drive to a crappy gig in Kentucky right now. So when I went back into being a stand-up again, I had a whole new appreciation for what a gift it is to go on stage every night. And because I, I had played so many crappy clubs, um, I knew what a gift it was to be able to go up for five to 10 minutes and, with a captured audience in front of 500 people that are, that are uh, pumped for comedy and working with some of the best comics in the industry that I took advantage of every moment. And all my writing sessions, all my studying in the comics, uh, and all my newfound maturity of, of, of finally having to claw my way back up to some type of career made me make the most of this. And so about three years into it, I, I, I discovered my voice. And the great thing about working the ships, it helped me be myself, but also working clean and also finding ways to do material that I wanted to do that normally would be considered offensive on ships. You know, so um, I was able since I was able to start a new act from scratch on the ships and also you did clean shows uh, in the early evening and, and adult shows uh, in, 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 the, in the late evening. I was able to, to learn how to relearn how to do both types of comedy. That's why I can work really clean now, squeaky clean. And I can also uh, go head to head with a crowd like I was it was classic combat comedy Thursday night in Canton. You know, but working on the ships all those years um, allowed me to, to not only build up skills I didn't have before, but to find out who I am and why I love comedy so much. So um, and I think what really helped me find my voice is when I learned what they were talking about, like Judy Brown and all these people at the Just for Laughs Festival whenever I auditioned. When they're, when they're talking about a point of view, you know, a lot of comics, when they get into comedy, they want to say funny things because they want to get laughs, you know, so they learn how to write jokes so they can make people laugh. Um, but good comics, you know, uh, amateur comics will learn how to write jokes so they can say things funny. A good comic will use jokes uh, so they can say things. You know, so you use humor to get your point across. Mm -hmm. What I realized was that my joke writing skills were great, but I wasn't saying anything. So what I started to learn how to do is, is that the most important thing about a comics act or, or, or any chunk of material is what it is you're trying to say. It doesn't have to be profound, but there has to be a reason for the joke to exist. So once I realized that, then it wasn't about topics anymore. It's about the certain angle about a topic. And, and when I discovered what premises were, a premise is an insight into the human condition, you know? And like, so if, if you want to talk about, you know, talking about shopping at Walmart might be hacked, but if you talk about how ashamed you feel at Walmart or how you're very, how um, you're very self-righteous when it comes to all these um, huge corporations that, abuse their um customer i mean abuse their they don't they exploit their workers but you shop there anyway because you you want to get the pistachios two for five dollars <laughs> you know? and then you talk about that 
and you talk about that, then then you're not hacked. You can you can you can go way up here. So it's not about the topics. So when I started learning all these things and watching some of the great comics I was working with, especially watching all the modern comics, you know, Bill Burr and everything, uh, I uh, I started to find my voice when I realized that you you use comedy to express your opinions. So now when I write new material. Um, I write down what I'm trying. I, I don't write jokes. I write premises. Uh, you know, I write opinions, and then I select the ones that I think have legs, and then I try to write jokes about them. That's a great way to do it. And I love your point about you know what, what premises are. I, I think a lot of, like you said, a lot of comics are trying to be funny, uh, but don't really get to the core of it. And I found that a great tool that I use is to just keep asking why. Well, why do I want to make this point? Why yeah. is this funny? What like why? did I even think of this in the first place and just continue? Like, it's almost like being a kid, you know, when you're a kid, you ask, well, why is this? Why is this? Why? And why is that? And, uh, you know, I think that's kind of conditioned out of most people, but if you have that, you know, comedic standpoint, you look at something that everybody else is looking at and you ask, well, why, why is that true? Why, you know, why do we yeah. do this every day? And like, there are some comic like you, you know, you have a whole premise and a whole chunk that you break down into several punchlines. Whereas somebody like Steve has a point that he tries that, that he can make in two to three sentences in like a setup punchline format, more of a, I just don't put enough emotion into these things. And what I'm learning is I need to still uh, make clear what my, like what Jeff was just talking about, how, how I feel about rather than just stating my opinion in a sort of two-dimensional way i gotta have more emotion and i think would help uh you know level with people and be like oh this guy has feelings rather than oh this guy's robotically telling jokes even though they're opinionated right yeah like like look at someone like lewis black you know you you get all wrapped up in his um in in his emotions stuff and you know he's really not that angry but uh, that's, uh, the stuff wouldn't sell as well if he didn't put his whole, you know, his whole heart into it. But right. then he also, it also has a lot to do with a comedic character, though, because like someone like Anthony Jeselnik, he doesn't put any emotion either. But he kind of has like a, a comic character where he's like a real piece of crap as a human being. But he right. thinks he's nice and charming and he thinks he's like a great guy. And so, so saying all these really horrendous things in a very blase, cheerful, non-emotional way actually work for him because it's going, it's, um, it's a going against the type of his character. It's, 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 it's his, his, his comedic flaw is that he is a, um, he's a, he's a real SOB, but then his blind spot is he thinks he's a great guy. And so that combination makes the audience in on the joke and, and the more crass he is. You know, but uh, yeah, so like when I, when, but you're absolutely right with me. I'm more like you. I don't really have, you know, a, a character so much as, you know, a, a what I hope to be original premises. But I find that if I don't, like if I talk about something that happened and it pissed me off, I try to act piss off. Or if, I, if some, I'm talking about something that somebody's doing is stupid, I'm like, how could they do this? You know, like, like you know, think about when you're pissed off about something. You go like, man, how, how can anybody believe that? You don't go, how can someone believe that, folks? You're like, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, and so, um, and also, too, the energy, when you, when you act out bits and you find the emotional connection to your material, the great thing about it is you are now trying to communicate your ideas instead of remembering the crap that you typed out all day today. 
and didn't have enough time to memorize it. So if you have emotion and you get emotionally engaged with your material, because you're used to speaking off the top of your head about a million subjects in your everyday life, when you're on stage and you bring emotion into it, it brings it more, it turns it more into a conversation than it does a recitation, a, a bit, a performance. So now all the little punchlines and all the, the, the setups and all the little like, you know, things that you're worried about, all the, the rough edges, like the extra syllables and the, and the, the long-winded sentences, those seem to fall away and you memorize and get the bit out more perfectly, uh, 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 sometimes flawlessly, because the emotion helps you keep the joke real. And when you're being real, your personality and your normal speaking skills will help you choose the right beats, meter, rhythm, and wording to get the joke out. So that's one of the added benefits. That's, and that's one of the reasons why you can see so many comedians that turn over an hour. You know, it could take you 10 years to get an hour of great material. But once you get to that level, especially if you're playing in front of 3,000 people every night who pay to see you and they know your voice, then you can turn over that material. But the key is, is finding your voice and learning how to, to produce the material. You know, uh, I mean, if you've gone to a neighborhood where they're building a new house, you know, in, 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 in March, you drive by, there's a hole in the ground. And in May, they're putting the aluminum siding on. But if, 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 if somebody just gave the three of us a gift card to Home Depot and said, go build a house, we'd still be at the Starbucks next to the Home Depot. But if, we, if, you, if, you, if you know how to build a house, you can build them in three months. And if you have you know, the structure in place, and that's the same thing with comedy. You know, so uh, when you find your voice, that's why so many comedians will do material that's, that's considered offensive to some people because people who aren't comedy savvy or uh, haven't had a chance to do their homework with the com about the comedian they're seeing, they have not been trained yet to realize that comedy is all in the subtext and that most comedians, when they say, uh, you know, like, for example, I, you got to love them white supremacists. You know, everybody, you know, you know, and then people, oh, I'm, I'm out of here. That's offensive. They don't realize that they're not going to spend five minutes dissing on white supremacists. They don't understand that you said something that was the opposite of what you meant. Mm -hmm. And, and um, you know, if, if, if Jim Jeffries goes on stage and, and go, hey, I like to tell you about why pedophilia is so great. You know, everyone's going to laugh because you now know he's going to tear apart pedophiles for the next hour. Or, or, or whatever. But other people that, that are less comedy sophisticated or just going to see a show so they don't know, they get so bent out of shape because they don't understand the tools that the comedian's using. They don't understand to look for the underlying premise or context. Irony and satire. Yeah, and, and that's why it's, it's so important that people don't tape comedians while they're on stage because you're all in this together and you're having a conversation that everybody's in on the comics, body language, the energy of the room, a good comic when, when broaching any difficult or sensitive subject is taking all these factors yeah. into account and he's weaving a tapestry and setting up the right emotions and the right setup to, to, to make the bit work. And he's feeling out the crowd to get them on their side. You just show a video of that guy on stage with no context saying something, all the context is lost. Yeah. And uh, the reason why comics shouldn't attempt 
button pushing material or sensitive material, edgy material until they discover their voice is they're not going to have a valid point of view that can be defensible, defendable. Yeah. I agree because I noticed that new comics like to try to do that right off the bat. And wow. everybody's just like, oh, this guy's offensive. No, they're just really bad at doing the ironic comedy that they want to do so badly. Exactly. Most times. <laughs> Sometimes they are just dicks, but you, you get what I'm saying. Right. I love watching a Jesselnik because, I mean, he's saying things that should, you know, turn a lot of people off. But the way he weaves it and he creates that character, too, that right. is a big part of what he's saying and why he's saying it. And uh, to, to watch audiences laugh at things that, you know, you shouldn't laugh at. You know, I, I feel like a lot of newer comics see that and think I can do that without that experience. Like you said, without finding that voice, it's like, well, why are you saying this? Are you saying this because you genuinely have feelings about this? Or are you saying this because you think it'll get a cheap laugh and you're, you're going to push somebody's buttons? Uh -huh. um, it's really interesting to watch newer comics and then an experienced comic will, will get on stage, you know, a few comics later and uh, tell a joke about the same topic that gets the audience rolling. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what, you, you, what you just touched on about the new comics, and, and, and Steve did too, is like, you know, guys, they're in, they're in love with the comedians that they love, that they like. You know, they're so like they, they, they want to emulate. And, and, you know, yeah. the fact that you have comedians that you want to emulate means you have a comedic soul and you're in the right path because you have to learn somehow. And, and stand-up comedy is an esoteric art form. I mean, there are some courses and stuff, but not, not, not as good as, you know, and it can help you, but you have to learn how to emulate comics that you, that you really respect. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem is, is the reason they don't realize that they're um, watching, you know, an eighth degree black belt and they're only a green belt and they're get their ass kicked if they try the same things, the right. same you know so what they don't realize is they'll, they'll go up and they'll think look i'm proving my, i'm proving that i'm ballsy i'm proving that i can shock an audience i'm proving that i'm not afraid to talk about things that's not what you should be proving what you should be proving is why this why this incident that happened in the news is so bad for society and why people have the wrong point of view and why this is dangerous to society and why this is an issue that we need to talk about you know if you want to talk about guns you're going to really try to show people how idiotic it is that we don't have gun laws and then you can then you use your humor to prove your point why we should have sensible gun laws and how we can we can both sides of the issue can have have what they want if we just use common sense so if you go up with that point of view like like with jim jeffries's famous bit then you're going to be able because you're, you're 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 making sense and you have a valid point of view and the, and, the, and the stronger your premise is the, the the more jokes you can hang on it because you're using humor to prove a point you know, um, you're not just going up there to posture. And so a lot of comics ha haven't discovered yet what a, what a premise is, what, what a, what a uh, good like insight is on a topic, you know, or how to make an argument for something. Like a lot of people, I think the comedians that do best are people with college degrees that have had to take um, thesis writing classes to learn what a, a, thesis, a, a thesis statement is, you know, and uh, learning how to, uh, or taking, um, being uh, taking debate classes or rhetoric classes, you know, because you learn how to communicate. If you if you can learn a lot of a lot of comics like me when I first started had to learn how to express themselves and learn how to argue in a, a point of view and learn how to have an opinion on things. And then if you're doing that while you're learning how to write jokes, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. But if you already have a, a, a worldview and you already have opinions on things, all you have to do is learn the craft. 
and and some and, and some guys will try to to um, go up there and push buttons and be edgy, but they're doing that for egotistical reasons because they want to be cool or they want people to think they're bright or clever or they want to think they're like a outlaw comic. When when the issue or the that you're trying to prove the, the expression is why you should be up there, you know, yeah. and so. Uh, uh, now the thing is, is that's why so many great comics that are considered offensive are working a rooms and selling out theaters. So when people come in and they go, "How is this guy working? How is he? Yo, I was ever so offended in my life. I'm going to write, you know, uh, Playhouse Square and make sure they never have Jim Jeffries back or whatever." You know what I mean? Because comics only get a huge audience is if there's truth in, in their material. If people can understand where they're coming from and they're making a valid point, people will be on their side. So yeah. the thing is, that's why great comedy is polarizing. So you're always going to have people who are offended because you are a good comedy should touch a nerve and it should have a point of the truth. And the thing is, is my truth isn't your truth. That's the one good thing about comedy today is people may not be flocking out to comedy clubs like they used to to see comedy, but they will flock out to a comedy club to see a certain comedian. They'll go to see Brian Regan, Jim Jeffries, uh, Lisa Lampanelli, all, all these comics. You know what I mean? Uh, Jim, uh, Jim Norton. You know what I mean? And so but but when you when you when you play a regular comedy club and you're a run of the mill road act then you have to be able to have a versatile enough act that, that the whole audience, you don't have fans yet, you know? So I think the main problem with um, the, the main thing the comedian, that the comedy clubs can do to help reduce the amount of instances where, where customers are angry because they were offended by something is to start educating the audience so many people come into a uh, into a comedy for the first time, usually winning tickets or whatever, or being taken by a friend to a you know comedy night to celebrate a birthday. And the first time they complain about they were offended or whatever, everybody tries to coddle them. And what they don't realize, like I, I, I got myself in trouble on the cruise ship because one night a comedian was killing, and a, one of the guests, carnival guests, came up to me and said, "This guy's not funny." And I said, excuse me? And she said, this guy's not funny. I said, what? And she said, this guy's not funny. I go, you're going to have to speak up. I can't hear you. Over the sound of 500 people <laughs> laughing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, when it comes to great comics, the, the, uh, like we're talking about the Jim Nortons and, and guys like that. Um, the problem is not them being offensive. The problem is audiences are being coddled and they're being robbed of the full comedy experience because no one's doing the difficult work of showing them what comedy is supposed to be and how they're supposed to behave in a comedy club and how, how they're supposed to open up their brain because they're, yeah. uh, they're going to enjoy stand-up comedy so much more if they learn how to watch it and learn how to interpret it. You know, so, um, when people come to a comedy club and they're offended, you have to look at the way they phrase their offense or they, they express their offense. You know, they usually say, this guy's horrible. This guy sucks. But they, what, they're, what they're missing out on is that 300 people who paid the same amount of money, all got babysitters, all drove here, all parked, are laughing. And a comedian's job 
is to come up with material that the majority of the audience will laugh at in cities all across North America on a consistent basis. And if I do a joke that you don't agree with my opinion and it offends you, well, it didn't offend me. I like my joke and I agree with my point of view. That's why I'm doing it. And the other people laughing and having a great time is the outcome that I was looking for. I wrote the joke thinking there are going to be 300 people at hilarities tonight. Okay. Tuesday, there'll be 50 people at hilarities tonight mm. uh, that, that are going to love this bit. And I can hardly wait to do it. I'm going to bring joy to people. I'm going to make an opinion and, uh, and hopefully people who aren't my point of view are going to be convinced by this and they are going to burn their MAGA hats when this joke's over because I'm doing them a service. You know, I'm not thinking I can hardly wait to get that spot tonight that I had to call in for six months ago and uh, dr- and drive 10 hours. I can hardly wait to drive 10 hours and uh, get on that club that it took me a year to get two years to get in with so I can go up and just start pissing people off and cost the cl- club money. They think that that's what you're trying to do. So what they don't realize is the people who are offended by things, they are putting their tastes, their their rights, their whatever, their sensibilities above those of everyone else's. And that's immature, it's selfish, and it's childish, and it's wrong. And so when people are coddled like that, it perpetuates. People should be embarrassed when they complain about being offended at a comedy show. They should be, they should be embarrassed. They shouldn't be rewarded, you know, but, but what you can do as a comedy club owner is you can go, Oh yeah. Um, we did our best to advertise the type of comedy this, this guy does. He's great. But if you don't like it, it's not your style. We'll gladly um, give you half off your drinks. And we're going to give you free tickets to see Jim Gaffigan next month or Brian Regan. Cause they're completely clean. And, and, and uh, <laughs> mailing list, to see only clean comedians. And we have them like every other week or once a month, we have a completely clean comic and we will get you special seats. That's how you handle it. But you don't right. go, you can, you can treat guests with respect, uh, customers with respect, but you don't, you have to, people who are offended have to realize that it's just not their cup of tea. And right. also, it's like, it's like going to a, a Nickelback concert when, you know, you're a huge fan of like, you know, uh, Travis Scott, you want to see Wrath, but then you go to like a Nickelback or a Tool concert and you're like, I don't yeah. like the music. It's like, well, of course you didn't like the music. Why uh-huh. would you go to this con- concert or you order a dish at a restaurant? Like, exactly. You know, I hate red meat. I'll get the steak. I'm like, what? Right. And like, I have an analogy like that. I came up with on the cruise ship. It's like with, 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 with Carnival Cruise Lines, you know, uh, with the, the way they treated their comedy, you know, they would, they would react you know, they would go apeshit whenever a guest would complain and they would, they would give them free cruises and everything. They would fire comedians and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But I liken it to like, um, you go up and go, um, I excuse, what's your problem, ma'am? Yes. Uh, this salad bar is horrible. Oh, okay. So then they come in, they throw out all the vegetables on the salad bar. They restock it. Everyone's waiting. They open up, come back in. How is it, ma'am? This salad bar is horrible. Okay, so then they get all of the vegetables. They throw. Oh them, my god! They put all the vegetables back. Fuck. And then come in. So uh, how is it? it's horrible. And then finally, 
someone will have the brains to say, excuse me, ma'am, but do you even like salad? No, I hate vegetables. The salad is horrible. Where's the dessert buffet? Uh, uh, oh my god! So 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 the point I'm making is is like if if people are offended by comedy, then comedy isn't for them. No. Comedy is supposed to be making fun of things, tearing down things that are wrong, stupid, scary, unjust, immoral, unfair about society and about daily life. You know, I mean, it can be it can be on the grand scale talking about racism and immigration and things like that, or it can be on a small scale where you're still addressing a real life situations and feelings. Like when you go to the phone store or you go to the store and you're waiting in line to be helped and they keep answering the phone and helping customers who are at home and didn't come in while the line of people waiting there. You know, so so you can do a joke about that, about how that how about how that is bad customer service and it's unfair, but it's not a huge doesn't have a huge global impact, whatever. So yeah. I mean, you can talk about things and have opinion on things, but even if I did a joke about that, which is seemingly inconsequential, somebody who works at a phone store and is always answering the phone instead of helping the people there, if she is oblivious to what an idiot she is or how bad her behavior is. And then I, I bring it up to her and she now sees that she's stupid for doing that. If she is the type of person who wasn't taught how to think and to deal with her inadequacies and to improve as a human being and to face her flaws, she will now become reactive and defensive. And I'll be crying talking about, I didn't come here to be picked on. I didn't come here to be offended. You're making fun of, of A&TT employees and I work at A&TT and I want my money back and now I'm going to need therapy. I'm going to go kill myself. You know, whereas if somebody comes in and they have a good sense of humor and they go, well, I do that. You know what? I better not do that anymore. <laughs> I wasn't thinking. Or if, if the, uh, because somebody in the past complained when they called a store and they didn't get anybody, now their boss is telling them they have to. So they can go, hey, Deb, this is why we're on the phone because they'll tell us we'll get fired if we don't answer it. You know, but you don't go, he's making fun of me. And the, and the thing is, is I just made, I gave you an example how somebody can be offended by me making fun of the retail clerks who are answering the phone instead of waiting on people in the store. What about if I start talking about abortion? What if I start talking about religion? What if I start talking about police brutality? Now you've upped the ante and the, um, and uh, those are bigger button issues, they're more sensitive issues, and they're more divisive issues. And so now people who, um, uh, people now are going, if they, if they, if they, they're going to hear those buzzwords, and they're going to instantly be offended, if they're the kind of people who don't know how to debate or how to accept other people's opinions without feeling threatened by them. Most people aren't taught how to debate, how to argue, how to express their opinions, um, whether verbally or, or, or uh, taking pen to paper. So when they're faced a situation where they have to, where they feel compelled to show their objection or express their objection, they only know how to act out in anger by either heckling, throwing a uh, throwing a beer bottle, demanding their money back because they have no one's taught them the rules of how to voice your opinion and to argue with somebody and to say, hey, I didn't think that was fair. When I was managing my comedy club at sea for Carnival, if people would go, hmm. Everyone, everyone else seems to like this comedian, but it's not my style. It's not the kind of comedy I like. We waited in line an hour. Could you get me 
could you get me a reserve seat for like a clean comedian or, or a comedian I might like better? But I would set them up right away. Or I would even like, I would even like call the room and go, this is the comedian you want to see this week. This guy, uh, uh, oh, I got the, I got the best comedian for you. Uh, fortunately, you're not going to like three of the comedians, but this comedian here, you can see each of their five shows and you're going to love them. And they come and they have a great show because they showed me respect. They showed the other comedians respect and they treated it as a matter of taste. Once you, as a, an audience member, you treat your objection to a comic's act or his point of view as anything other than a matter of taste, then no one's going to want, no one's going to want to listen to you. And there's a lot of clubs that don't deal with complainers. They go, well, don't come back to my club, you know? And, and, and that, I don't think that extremes right either when there's so many other options, you right. know, but, uh, especially if somebody's, you know, upfront with you about that. And, you know, I, I come from a food service industry background and so, yeah, every once in a while, you'll get somebody whose steak is isn't exactly how they want it, and they take it as though like the chef made it that way to spite them. And it's like, no, 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 that's I don't know why you thought that. Like, yeah, it's the people that are like, hey, you know, I, I prefer this a little bit less done. You know, I'll send it back. That's fine. If they're cool about it, you know, we'll we'll send you like yeah. a little appetizer while you're waiting for it to come back or something. Exactly. You know? and, and that's thinking, the way to handle it. And they're thinking, why would the chef? overcook my steak if it wasn't yeah. trying to say screw you because yeah. i'll tell you why because last week there was 10 people who sent the steak back because it, it, it was too overdone and it wasn't pink enough mm -hmm. so now i was thinking oh i don't want anybody to complain about the steak being too uh you know too pink or, or too uh, not pink enough so i better not overcook this and now the person who so if you understand that when you order and go, Hey, I realize that there are a lot of people who uh, don't like their steaks tough and they'll send them back to you. Let the chef know that um, I have an aversion to pink and uh, I want, I want you to be able to lace up my steak when he's done with it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they'll, they'll know to cook it the way you want. But, it, but what it does is it takes communication on, behar on, on behalf of the customer. Mm -hmm. And if you're a customer and you know that people love their food prepared in a, a lot of different ways, I'll go in and I'll say, you know, this is how I want my, this is how da da da. I, I don't like gravy. I like butter on my potatoes. And can you make sure you, you, you let the chef know because you're really busy and they're slinging orders back there. Mm -hmm. And then if you take the time to communicate them and give them a frame of reference where they can properly convey the order with the details necessary, the order will be right every time. And, and, and the thing with comedy, you can't do that in so much as you can do your, your homework. If you, if you go in thinking that every comic you see is supposed to please you and only you, and anytime they deviate from what you consider to be funny or appropriate, you're going to be disappointed nine times out of 10 when you go to a comedy club. So if, People are taught this and they realize that being offended or seeing an act they don't like is just a matter of picking the right thing on the menu. Then, then, then they will become comedy fans eventually because they'll come to more shows because they'll know to, that they should research the shows and maybe see a clip of the comedian. And when, when you think that nobody has a right to say that, he has no right to say that, he has no right to joke about that. Then what you're, what you're saying is you're limiting your options in the future because no matter every comic you see is going to have something that you shouldn't talk about. And where the truth is, this is America. I have the right to talk about anything I want to. But what I have to do as a comedian is I have to make sure that those 300 people in that club are laughing. Yeah. And when they walk out, they tell the club owner that I'm the funniest comic they ever saw. Mm -hmm. 
you know? And so the whole thing is, is no comic is going to do any joke in his act. Okay. Whatever a Jim Norton does a Netflix special that hour that he does that could send your grandma to the picket line, you know, protesting him. None of that stuff would be in that hour if it didn't slay audiences all across America in theaters before, before the taping. So when comics go on stage, we don't want a joke to offend anybody. We don't want a joke not to get a laugh. We don't want booze. We don't want groans. We want people double over in laughter. So we are talking about things that we agree with, that we think are true, and we don't think are offensive, that we think are actually truthful. So it, it, when, when somebody doesn't agree with that, and it's they're only one out of 300 or 500, then I've done my job. But if only one person in the back of the room likes the uh, likes a bit, then I, I didn't use the rules of comedy correctly to properly construct the bit. And as a comedian, our job is to make sure that we use our craft and our art form correctly enough or skillfully enough that we will take all of our ideas and opinions and put them into joke form and to create these bits that will entertain audiences, hopefully educate them if we're that type of comic and also leave them wanting to hear more from us. And sadly, when you do that type of comedy, it's going to be polarizing. And so the key to ending the, the uh, or to diminishing the amount of people offended by comedy is to teach them that, first of all, comedy is not for them. If you can't handle listening to other people's opinions, and, and if you don't like being challenged by ideas, then, then go see Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is, uh, there's a comic out of Scotland. His name is Daniel Sloss. He had an HBO special titled X. And, and oh, he's so smart. He, it's such a good hour. He closes it with a rape joke, but he gets there in that the rest of the special is about toxic masculinity. But the way he frames it, he frames it in a way almost that he's like uh, trying to approach men who behave that way as as their friend like he jokes about his his friends uh, acting a certain way how he's acted that way before and then he brings it all together with with a rape joke and he and he his whole message is this way of behavior is wrong but the way he packages it you can't tell that's the message that he's that he's trying to deliver until that wow. final bit and it's it's masterfully done and uh, he has a ted talk that I kind of, uh, I, I want to at least, it's about, it's a two minute clip that I, that I picked from this Ted talk and, uh, it, it makes, you know, all your points, uh, it accentuates everything that you've said because you've given us just so much good information in the last, I mean, we've been doing this for about 50 minutes now and it doesn't feel that long. A better comic would have done it all in two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. You got a word economy. It's funny that you said Daniel Sloss because there's a, can I mention other podcasts on this podcast? Yeah. Yeah, there's a podcast called uh, Good One. It's uh, hosted by the uh, one of the editors of Ultra Magazine, and he interviews a comic and uh, each episode, and, and they go they go over a bit, a specific bit. They play the bit, then they talk about everything about how they can see the bit, they wrote the bit, the evolution of the bit, and they talked about a, a, a Daniel Sloss bit, which I think is great, which is really is germane to our conversation today. He um, he does a joke about uh, how. You know, Santa Claus, how frustrating it is to be a parent 
And your kids are going, oh, Santa brought me this great bike and Santa brought me my playset and Santa brought me my play. And yet, you know, the parents spent all night putting that stuff together and paying for it and everything. And so, and he goes, you know how you feel like when your kids thank Santa Claus for all the presents they got on Christmas? That's how your doctor feels when you thank God for the surgery going well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and then he talks about how, how people are offended by it. But the thing is, is that's a valid point. But if it, it, and, it, and I agree with it, but some people wouldn't. So uh, you have to be able to, as an audience member, if you're going to go to comedy shows to go, wow, that doesn't, you know, I, I, I don't agree with that, but not be offended by it. Yeah, you know, I, I know exactly what bit you're talking about. It's yeah. it's very funny. Um, well, definitely be, check out his specials. Yeah, you should be. People should be offended by bad comedy or lazy comedy, not by comedy they disagree with. Right. You can't laugh at that. No comedian wants to offend you. That's not our job. Our job is to make you laugh, make you think, make you smile, make you want to sleep with us so that our night in that hotel room is slightly less depressing. <laughs> not to upset you in any way, shape, or form, form. Because the thing about it is, when comedians are telling these stories, it's to get any form of a reaction out of you. And Jimmy Carr famously was in trouble recently. Uh, he made a joke about the Paralympics. He made a joke that our troops in Iraq were getting injured, but at least that would make us have a good Paralympic team. And people went mental. Oh, people were so upset. If you were to believe the tabloids, trains stopped on the track so that people could get off in order to vomit at how disgusted they were by this joke. People killed themselves. They were so disgusted by what he said. Right? That's not the case. The only people who weren't offended by that joke, the war veterans who found it hysterical. Oh, they thought it was very... They repeated it to each other. So if they weren't offended by that joke, Who's got the right to be offended? People have developed an amazing new ability recently. People can be offended on behalf of other people. You can't be offended on behalf of someone. Feelings are non-transferable. You can't be a husband standing beside a wife giving birth going, don't worry, honey, I'm feeling pain on behalf of you. She would beat you to death. Nobody asked these people to be offended on behalf of them. They just did it themselves. They jumped in front of a bullet that was heading towards a tree. Right? It was a, it was a blatantly <laughs> stupid sacrifice they never needed to make. Laughing. Brilliant. He was 22 when he did that TED talk. I mean, to have that that sort of mental clarity about what what comedy is at that age is is it, you know, yeah. he's, he's a very smart comic. I had never uh, seen that TED talk before and like he said a lot of things that I said, you know, uh, whatever. So it's like it's universal, you know. I mean, uh, but some people, you know, are better articulating than others, but and and I think it's you know, we as comics rejoice in seeing a clip like that, but it's very important that audience members see something like that. What, the, the most important thing he said is we go up there to make people laugh. We're not trying to offend anybody. Yeah, that's you know? yeah, it's all about intent. But that's yeah. the thing with, with humans is we have a, a tendency to judge ourselves based on our intentions and judge mm -hmm. other people based on their actions and attach that to their character. So, mm -hmm. you know, if, if a comic tells an offensive joke, then... Well, they're doing that because they're a bad person and they were doing and we should cancel them and they should never, you know, and that's that's, that's right. mind blowing to me because it's like you haven't told an offensive joke ever in your life. You haven't had an offensive thought ever in your life. Well, also, too, they're saying that someone expressing their opinion that they believe in and that other people agreed with and laughed at is bad. But 
ending somebody's livelihood so they can't pay their health insurance or feed their children or get their children braces or pay the rent or put food on the table. That's not bad. These people that become self-righteous and they use their self-righteousness to be able to inflict harm onto other people and vengeance on other people. And they don't, they don't, they're too immature or too emotionally unself, not emotionally self-aware enough to see what they're doing. You, you know what I mean? It's like, well, if you try to cancel somebody now, that, that act is worse than any joke. You oh, know I mean? The intent, yeah. trying to destroy somebody's careers, you know. Um, and what he said was, we're, we're, uh, you're trying to make people laugh. And, and the, the best thing he said about it is being offended or outraged on the behalf of others. It's like, I, I was telling you about this joke that I did. Um, I don't really do political humor. I mean, um, uh, the joke I say is I don't do political jokes in my act because I don't want to divide my audience. I want everyone to enjoy my show, not just the smart people. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, but every once in a while, I'll practice writing like monologue jokes, so like the late night shows, and, and I've submitted uh, a packet to one show in the past. And so, uh, I'll just do these like softball Jimmy Fallon type posts as joke writing exercises. Mm-hmm. And I had a fan of mine who was a big Trump supporter just go mental on me. And it was a simple joke, you know, back during the um, uh, the whole the, the, the Russian, you know, the, the, the Russian collusion scandal. Yeah. So the joke I put on Facebook was uh, President Trump's motorcade was involved in a fender bender today, an accident, traffic accident. But the president insists that there was no collision. <laughs> so, so this woman who had been a, uh, who I went to school with her brother and, um, and she's from my hometown and I, she came on a lot of my cruises and she was one of my fans on my Facebook fan page. She went nuts on with me and saying, how dare you make fun of our president? You know, <laughs> it's like you, your career should be ended and I'm going to try to make come sees you again you have no right to perform comedians should not make fun of our president he's your president too and if you can't be funny without denigrating our commander-in-chief you have no right i'm gonna make sure your career is ended and all this stuff and so the joke i came up with a response to that is um uh the the president of the united states doesn't need your help defending him on Twitter and on social media. The president of the United States has the army, the Marines, the air force, the Navy, uh, the, the, the secret service and the nuclear codes. He doesn't need you to protect him from uh, lame ass monologue jokes that Jimmy Fallon wouldn't pay me $20 for. You know, have you read the president's Twitter feed? He can defend himself. Somebody trying to defend the president from my tweets is like me going to see The Rock in a WWE cage match and going, have a seat, Dwayne. I got this. (laughs) It's like what they don't realize is uh, that's what America's about, being able to make fun of our leaders. Mm -hmm. That is a, a tried and true tradition going back to like Will Rogers. You know, so they've got it completely wrong. And, and, and the society they want, oddly enough, is like Russia. You know, like they, they're, they're talking about how un-American is to make fun of the president. No, it's, that's exactly what the definition of, of being an American. 
is yeah. making fun of the president. And, 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 and the thing is, is, you know, people make Obama jokes all the time and I laugh, you know, even though I voted for him, you know, I, if it's a good joke. It doesn't matter. Like who's the subject of the joke. Doesn't matter if it's a good joke. It's a good joke. Right. Yeah. Is it funny? Yeah. Can that's all I'm worried about. Humor? Yeah. Like, uh, this is Joe said, uh, Conan O'Brien did about, uh, about, uh, I uh, said, it's been reported that after leaving office, President Obama is considering owning an NBA team. They say Obama wants to be an NBA owner because it's, it's his only chance to get someone on the court. Sure. Yeah. And see, it, it, to me, that's why like, I, I, I'll watch, uh, I'll, I'll listen to um, Dennis Miller, who's now very far right, very conservative, and he'll make jokes that I don't agree with, but they're good jokes, and I'll laugh at him anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, he. Uh, my mom is very conservative, and she was like, "You got to watch just one of Dennis Miller's clips on Fox." And though I didn't agree with what he was saying, he made some funny points. Yeah, I mean, you he know? had some good jokes about Biden being old, and it was like, "That's that's very funny, cool." Uh-huh. Yeah. So why don't you laugh at my Trump jokes? No. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like you were saying earlier, you know, it's not, everybody has their own point of view, and if we were taught as kids that everybody has different perspectives and that's okay, it makes it creates a larger, more beautiful tapestry rather than your opinion is the best opinion and it's right. And like, you know, admit you're wrong every once in a while. The world needs a little more of that. Well, comedy brings to the table. I think if you check my Twitter and Facebook history, you'll see that I, um, unless I'm just, uh, liking it or, or, or saying good job or something, I never comment on anybody's, uh, page. Like, 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 like if there was some conservative comic who was going on and on making jokes about how great Trump is and this and that, whatever, I would read it. And if I thought it was funny, I would continue to follow it. If not, I wouldn't pay attention to it anymore. But I would never go, like, I would never criticize him. And I tell people, I go, if you don't like my jokes, write your own jokes in your Twitter feed. Write your own jokes on your Facebook. And they go, it's freedom of speech. No, you have the freedom of speech to say the joke, so I have the freedom of speech to tell you how unfunny you are. No, you don't. You have the freedom of speech to write your own jokes on your own comedy stage, deliver your own show. You don't have the right to try to intimidate me because you're trying to silence me by telling the club owner that I suck and I shouldn't be hired back. That's not freedom of speech. That's suppression of speech. And people don't get that. They're trying to shut me down by... Uh, getting Facebook to ban my page, getting people to unfollow me, getting people to uh, not come to my show. Now, this doesn't happen to me because I, I, I purposely do clean shows to, to avoid all this stuff. But what I'm saying in general, so when they when 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 someone tells you, oh, uh, we're going to tell people how unfunny you are, we're going to call a club, tell them not to book you. That's not freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is me doing a, a Trump joke, and then you going, oh, okay, and then you write an equally venomous. Biden joke or Hillary joke on your page for your followers. That's, that's exercising freedom of speech and difference of opinion. Right. But bullying somebody about their opinions isn't freedom of speech. That's cowardly and it's easy and it's, it's, it's not heavy lifting. You know, uh, it's very easy to um, criticize somebody, but very hard to write your own joke. Yeah, that reminds me, uh, Amy Poehler has a great quote. Cause I used to criticize people's work and then, uh, and and then once I, my work started getting criticized, it was like, oh, that doesn't feel great. Um, but she has a quote. Uh, she says, I want to be around people that do things. I don't want to be around people that judge or talk about what people do. I want to be around people that dream and support and do things. And that's, I mean, 
if you're going to criticize somebody else's work, come up with something equally as good, if not better. Uh, because like you said, complaining and attacking and bullying, that's the easy way out. If you want to prove yourself and your point to be more valid, you have to uh, create an equally valid or if not more valid point in response. Yeah. And you know what also, also adds to that is the fact that great stand-up comics, the better the comic, uh, the more, the, the easier they make it look, that most effortless it makes it look. So um, when, what, what people don't realize is, is a lot of the reason why people are offended is a lot of people feel disenfranchised, they feel disempowered, and they also feel voiceless. First of all, they think comedy is going to be fart jokes like they hear on the radio, whatever. Mm. So, so then they go to a show. And then when so, like, so many people have to keep their mouth shut at work, they have to keep their mouth because they don't want to say what they feel around their spouse because then their spouse will be in a bad mood the rest of the day. If they say what they want to their girlfriends at the PTA, whatever, then they're going to get catty with them. And then uh, so like every day there are situations where if they were to say what they wanted to say, they'd be punished for it. So people learn to keep their mouth shut, to be afraid to voice their opinions, and that's a choice they make. Then they go to a comedy club when they see somebody who's made completely different choices, uh, and they're up there saying whatever they want, and all these people are egging them on. They become indignant. They become ashamed. They become angry, and they're going, how come he has the right? Right there, how come he has the right to say what he wants and I don't? That's when someone comes over and, and, and pulls out the PowerPoint chart and shows the 10 years of becoming a comedian and how right. different it is. All and here's, put in. here's everything this comic had to go through to be able yeah. to say tonight. Exactly. Yeah, it's not just that they're saying it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Like, yo, he just goes up there and wings it. No, they put so much work into this and you're just you're right. not putting any effort in. Right. And they also, also, you learn your voice because people will tell you, like, you know, um, uh, that uh, if a joke sucks, if, 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 if you if you cross the line and say something offensive, then the audience will let you know. Like when I was hosting the comedy shows, a, a trick that I learned was people are ambivalent or kind of torn between having children in the audience. They wanted kids to enjoy the show, especially their kids. But at the same time, they were worried that comics were giving less of a show because the kids were there. And so they were being robbed of a better show because the kids were there. And also everybody loves and protects kids. There's no person who wants to see a kid hurt or embarrassed or whatever, but there isn't anybody who doesn't want to kick a kid down a flight of stairs on a cruise. You know, you want to smack a kid at the same time. If you see a kid actually get hurt, you're going to mother or father them until their parents show up. That's just human instinct. So what I learned is that when kids were acting up during the show, you know, saying stupid things or misbehaving or or horseplay in the front row. And then or they would like taunt me and say heckle me. And I would I would go after them like I would an adult and I would I would tear them a new one and the audience would go would go apeshit over it as long as I kept the exaggeration up and made the target of the kid's behavior make the target the kid's behavior if i made fun of what the kids said and how they acted like man I know, where are my where are your parents are they're in the casino yeah no kidding you know they, they don't want to be here with you even your parents don't want to be with you you know so everyone starts laughing and and i go yeah keep it up kid you know, here you are on a cruise instead of being in school. Pretty soon you're going to be having my job if you don't get an education, things like that. And then if you go after the kids and when they say something, you slam them. 
people were going nuts. But the moment you called the kid stupid or made fun of him as a fat kid or made fun of anything about him physically or actually did an insult, the audience would turn on you. Oh, sure. You know, and so they know the rules, you know, just like, oh, here, here's what I wanted to say. Uh, I sit out in the backyard. Uh, I'm inside now, but I have an office set up in the, on the patio and there are kids playing in the neighborhood. And sometimes I hear kids screaming. Mm. Sometimes I hear kids crying. And most of the time, I just keep working. When I hear the kids screaming, the timber of the scream, the length of the scream, the intensity of the scream tells me immediately, without seeing the situation, that that kid is having fun or he's pretending or he's playing. And if I hear a kid starting to cry, the intensity of the cry, the, the, the volume of the cry, the pitch of the cry tells me that he just spilled his lemonade, uh, Jimmy took his Frisbee, or maybe, you know, he fell off his bike and he's embarrassed. But the moment that screaming changes, I know that kid just got hit by a car, fell off his bike or cut himself, or somebody's threatening him, or, or he fell out of a tree. And I know instantly to just run in the sound of that scream to help that kid. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is people in comedy clubs need to be able to gauge offensive material in the same way the difference like when you're playing with a dog a dog growling when he's playing or when he's biting you when he's playing or a kid who's screaming or crying over something stupid you know so when you when so they're hearing a comic saying certain things and uh, saying things that are uh, are making fun of something or 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 they're being sarcastic or ironic and saying the, the opposite of what they believe people don't have that same they're tone deaf. They don't have that same ability to see what's going on. Isn't really offensive. That kid crying really isn't hurt. He's having fun. Mm-hmm. So that comic talking about Trump isn't really. He's 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 trying to make a point, and he's not really being offensive. And so you have to learn how to listen to comedy like that. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just I mean, it goes back to the point. He's just trying to make people laugh. And if somebody who's a Trump supporter, for example, to to run with this. Um, is laughing at a joke about Trump, then you've, you've done your job. That's, that's like my ultimate goal as a comic is to have somebody who believes the opposite of what I'm saying, laugh at what I'm saying. Yeah. Like I have a joke. I go, my girlfriend's from Croatia. I got her from the same website that Trump got Melania. Yeah. www.americanwomenwontdome.com. Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. And and yeah, they get a big laugh, but also too, what I've learned is to go after better targets. Like, Instead of like making fun of like, you know, Trump, you know, that maybe the joke I want to write will be about how, how that woman, that, that ex fan of mine said that how I shouldn't make fun of the president yet all the conservative talk show hosts made fun of Obama uh, and all, all, uh, all Fox news fans, all Trump fans. When, when, when Obama was president, they would laugh at all kinds of horrible memes, racist memes and stuff like that. And why can't, and, and this is a thing nobody asks is why do you think you need to defend the president? If he's so tough, why do you think that you should defend somebody? Why is president Trump? You can make an argument for why he, he's a good president and why you want to, uh, him to be president, but you can't make an argument why you shouldn't make fun of him after he was the one who said that President Obama 
was not born in this country, and he instigated the whole birther movement. So uh, how, uh, tell me anything other than that that's disrespectful to a, uh, more disrespectful to a sitting president than that. So if, if he can do that and, 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 and say all these horrible things about people because it's a political game and he's doing it as a game, then we should be able to play the game and make jokes about him. And uh, the reason why I think, too, why it's so much easier to offend um, people on the right is that to defend liberal politics, you really have to lay down a case. You really have to be conversant with the issues and the facts, and you have a lot of explaining to do. Whereas if you want to, um, if you want to support or defend something you heard on Fox News, those arguments seem to be more in sound bites and you don't have to go as deep. So it's easier to be able to parrot and, or uh, advance opinions from a conservative point of view because you're not dealing, you're dealing more with emotions and attitudes than you are with actual facts and substance. And it's, um, and when you try to defend liberal policies, a lot of times you end up in the weeds because you got to know a lot more about it to make your case. Oh yeah. No, I've, I've run into that myself. Um, Jeff, we do have to run. Um, I would love to do, I could sit down and talk about this for hours. I mean, you've got, you've got so much information. You've got so many experiences that I'm sure that, you know, you want to share and I have so many more questions. So, uh, but I would love to have you back eventually. If you want to close this out, uh, by kind of rounding everything together into a final point or like a final bit of advice for comics that are trying to write material, uh, to make a point or to find their voice, because I think we keep going back to that, finding your voice. Uh, what, yeah, would you, um, what, what bit of advice would you offer? I would, um, I would start by when you're writing your material, to um, when you're writing material trying to find your voice, is to do an inventory of your feelings, beliefs, values, etc. A good exercise I find is uh, instead of just sitting down to write jokes, I'll decide like what path I'm going to take today. So like I'll put, I'll get a sheet of paper and go, um, I'm, I'm afraid that this will happen or I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of this. Or here's something that makes me angry. Or I'll say like, this is unfair. So like say like, this is unfair. So I'll put blank is unfair. Blank is unfair. Blank is, or I think it's unfair that blank. And I'll write that 10 times down. And then what I'll do is I'll fill in the blank. I think it's unfair that we say so-and-so about that we hold cops to a high standard, but not realizing that, that, that. but then I think it's, it, it's unfair that everybody says that teachers unions are too strong, but cop unions are, 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 are much stronger. So, so, so I, I put down things that I believe in. And then what I do is, is if you spend an hour doing that, you haven't created any joke yet. So you haven't created a baby. You haven't given life to anything that you're going to be protective of. And you haven't given life to anything you're going to be defensive about. Because in comics, when we write jokes, it's like a, a child. You don't want to get rid of it. It's like you'll, you'll stick to that joke even if it doesn't work. But the, if, you, if you wait to evaluate your opinions and the things you want to talk about first. So write down something that pisses you off, that scares you, that intimidates you, that you feel challenged by, that you think is unfair, that you think is unjust. And write simple things in a sentence, one sentence, and then you evaluate those sentences and try to find things that, that you really connect with, that you think that you can talk about, and that you think other people will relate to, and, and find the most relatable ones that you think the most amount of people will relate to your point of view, and, and then figure out why, like you said, why I want to talk about this joke. 
And then if you get your, then put in bullet points, your opinions. Why do I think this? Why is this scary? What should we do about it? And then if you put down, what's the solution to this problem? Now you have, you have your mix. If you put down why you're upset by this, that can become your act out. Because people who are da 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 da, and then you can you know um, like you say police unions are too strong. Your act out could be uh, a police union head saying why that cop shouldn't be prosecuted for the horrible thing he did, and so now that's an act out. And then if you have a solution to the problem, it could be the mix. Wouldn't be in a perfect world. Wouldn't be great if blank or what really needs to happen is blank. Or wouldn't it be great if somebody finally decided to blank? So now you're using these comedic formulas uh, to support your ideas and your feelings on, on a subject instead of just trying to construct a joke out of thin air. And if you, uh, and if you know why you um, want to do a joke, then you can say, okay, I want to do this joke about Trump because I think it's wrong that he's able to act that if he, because he doesn't put in the work and, and somebody who can't control his, his actions and tempers is going to be too impetuous when it comes to a, uh, uh, an important decision. Okay. Now what, what do I not want people to know? I don't want them to think that I'm calling them stupid for voting for Trump or that Trump doesn't have some good policies or that he hasn't done some things that are important to them. So now that I know what I don't want to do with that joke and what, what I could accidentally say to, to, to uh, then I will write a disclaimer into the bit or a clarification so that people understand what I'm talking about and know that they're not going to be offended. Like I have, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll end with this because this is a perfect example of what I'm, what I'm, what I'm talking about. This is an example of a bit that I wrote using this formula. I just, I just told you about, I go, um, in my opinion, partisanship is killing this country. We need to reject tribalism and embrace tolerance and understanding instead of fighting each other. We need to focus on the real enemy, Canada. Okay, now that's that is a that's just a formulaic joke to break the ice and get people laughing, and to show them that I'm going to you know to, 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 that I'm going to be funny when I do stuff and keep it kind of lighthearted. So now, so now that I did that and they saw nothing bad came at that punchline, now I'll go into you know uh, you know I'll say like. Uh, do you realize those people are living right above us? How can we let anyone who speaks English that weirdly lives so close without a border wall? Oot, a boot, stay on your side of Lake, uh, of Lake Erie, weirdos. But then I, then I get into the meat of the bit. I go, in my opinion, tribalism is a real threat to our democracy. That's why I consider myself an American first and a Democrat second. The other day, one of my liberal friends said, I wish Trump supporters would stop and think once in a while. And I said, yes, but the fact that they don't stop and think is what makes them such great neighbors. A Trump supporter will help you change a flat tire in the rain without even thinking about it. A Trump supporter will plow your driveway during a blizzard without even thinking about it. A Trump supporter will cut your grass while you're on vacation without even thinking about it. So you liberals need to stop vilifying Trump supporters and start finding them more chores to do. <laughs> That's so anytime funny. I see someone wearing a MAGA hat, I don't raise my nose in judgment. I lower my head in prayer. And then I ask the good Lord to move wrestling to 9 p.m. so that these people will stop watching Hannity. <laughs> yeah. So you see how I made a, 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 a point and I made the point about how we're all like how again, I was making fun of divisiveness mm -hmm. and that how you have to see the good in other people. Mm -hmm. And so I, I was still able to take my jabs at Trump supporters, but at the same time showing them respect 
And um, I would like to get much better at coming up with jokes like that and finding the more humane and the more relatable, the more overlapping premise that more people can relate to than to actually make fun of like, you, you know, I, I want to do more jokes about how hard it is to get together with your relatives because, you know, if you're liberal and they're an enemy, it's going to end in a fight. Instead of writing a joke about how stupid my relatives are, write a, write a bit about how difficult it is to even talk politics with anybody these days. So, you know, you're trying to avoid the subject in a million ways and maybe come up with a bit about how somebody brings up something in the news and then you try to twist it around into something mundane. Like, so that, those are ideas that I've been playing with. And so if you, if you start off realizing what it is you want to say and then what the possible objections can be and misinterpretations can be, then you will automatically start writing into your bits clarifications and justifications and disclaimers, so to speak, so that people who are following along and at least moderately intelligence will go, I'm going to give this guy a shot. He's not being disrespectful. He's making a point about this. He's making a because because chances are, if you write jokes about Trump's behavior, there are going to be a lot of supporters who can't stand how he behaves because they think that uh, he's ruining the message. Mm -hmm. you know what i mean so there's common ground so i think to, to, to end it when you're writing jokes never write bits to prove that you're brave that you're a button pusher that you got a big dick that you're the next you're the next reincarnation of the dolly bill hicks llama mm -hmm. you know what i mean you, yeah. you go up because there's something that you want to share with the audience and then get them to think it too. Something that you think is unfair, unjust, scary, hurt. And you want to share that experience with people and get people to commiserate with you. And this could be just writing jokes about shopping or driving. They don't, you know, if you find the human element and if there's anything in that point of view that could be, um, if you have respect for your audience when you're writing the bit, then you have less chances, less less instances where you have to defend yourself online so before you go on stage if you think about the point of view of people who might disagree with you and put something in the joke for them that will lessen the blow or make them understand you better you'll find less and less instances where you have to thin your joke on the spot or after the show right you, you know and so it's uh it's you want people if you want to people change 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 people's minds with comedy you can't embarrass them or humiliate them. You need them to go, aha. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's why, um, like Bill Burr, Bill Burr is, you know, but he gets his point of view across and he very diligently and very quickly and economically, and very surgically gives you all the information in the setup that you need to know. Uh, he'll even tell you, that I, 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 you know, I, I've got horrible ideas or I'm, I'm a jerk, but this is why I think this. And so you'll come along with him because you'll understand why he has his point of view and not to, not to take it personally. And, and that's why, you know, he's such an amazing comic. Uh, he, he made, he did this bit, like I'm on the side of being, I was on the side that, that criticized those brothers down in Tennessee that hoarded all the, the, the hand sanitizer so they could sell it at a huge profit. Remember that story? Yep. Well, Bill Burr did a bit. Uh, which blew me away it was uh, it was on um, a stay at home version of Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy Kimmel pulled out in front of Bill Barr's house, put his iPhone out and interviewed Bill and Bill did a bit defending, you know, um, here's this guy and his brother 
You know, maybe they're down their luck. Maybe they don't have a lot of money. They took their life savings. They saw an opportunity. They saw a demand. They took a risk. They got off their fat asses and they did something. They, they, they risked their capital. They bought these things. And now everybody's vilifying them. But it's the same thing Amazon does or Walmart does, being a monopoly, monopolizing the market. But when they do it, they're these corporate giants, brilliant businessmen. But when these two chuckleheads do it, they're a punchline on the news. Now, do you see how that's like the opposite of how most people would go, like making fun of them for being horrible people, for hoarding all that, whatever. But then he, he, he's showing you how hypocritical we are when we let huge corporations be monopolies and we, we, we enable those monopolies by giving them our business because we don't want to pay more for, for a, a box of staples. Right. Who's, who's the real bad person here? Yeah, uh, <laughs> now, Bill Burr is great. He's food for thought. Yeah. You've given us a real masterclass in, in joke writing and structure, and uh, we appreciate you jumping on the podcast. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Any social media you want to plug? Um, no. Um, can I stick around now to watch the adult film that Steve is going to be filming on that couch there? <laughs> Absolutely. We'll shoot you a private <laughs> Zoom link. I am not. <laughs> Casting couch, Steve oh, Murray. Yeah, you should, man. You missed out on an opportunity. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jeff. Uh, yeah, I'm at jefftofundu.com. Uh, my album will be coming out on Ontour Records uh, on the, this fall, ontourrecords.com. It's called Jeff with Two Fs. And uh, uh, I should be at the Funny Stop in, in August and uh, slowly getting uh, gigs again. And uh, I taped America's Got Talent, but it doesn't look like it's going to air because they tape uh, two thirds more talent than they need. So, like, uh, only a third of the of the acts that they tape make it to the air. Nobody told us that when we did the show. Mm, yeah, yeah. We, we knew that. I mean, I knew that it's a variety show, not a competition. It's a variety show. It's all planned out. It's all, you know, but so I had no illusions of going all the way or, you know, you know, winning or anything like that. Cause it's just, it's just, it's just a show. It's all, it's all, it's all scripted out and thought out and plotted out, but the, the acts are real. So I least thought that I would be on the show, but like you can, you could, I mean, you could uh, do great on the show and not even have your stuff air. They just, you know, if there's two accidents, you know, if there's like five 13 year old prodigy singers, they'll pick the one that fits the narrative of the episode. And the other ones you've never even hear of, even if they get, standing ovations and stuff so but i was if you watched last week's episode uh when this italian kid singer named luca sings like barry white you can see me in the wings getting ready to go on while he's being interviewed by terry uh crew so and then so, for jeff shaw <laughs> yeah. um, so, the, the fact that you even got there that's awesome though that, that's really a testament to the work that you've put in and uh he's got a you got a dry bar comedy special as well yeah, drybarcomedy.com, or you can just go into YouTube and look at the clips. And if you download the app, you can watch all the uh, Drybar Comedy specials for free on the app. There it is. All right, Jeff Shaw, thank you for joining us. Steve Mers. See you, Steve. Later, man. Thanks, Thanks for joining you. us, as always. If you'd like to weigh in on today's topic, follow us on Twitter at You Can't Laugh Pod, or like us on Facebook at You Can't Laugh at That, and tell us how you did laugh at today's topic or how you didn't. This is all about the conversation is what I'm saying. All right. Bye.